the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, unveiling visions of, of what has happened, what is happening now, and what will soon happen. And today's text unveils the most glorious vision of Jesus as he is right now, as he is our high priest, reigning king, and eternal judge. If you weren't here uh, last week, I would encourage you to go back and to listen or watch uh, the message, sort of a, an introduction to the book of Revelation. We covered some helpful uh, features of the study last week, so if you weren't able to be here with us, I encourage you to go back to the website or our podcast to check it out. We, we started out with those helpful features because uh, many of us have have looked at this book and you've shared with me how complex it is and confusing and we have questions. And so as we go through this last book of the Bible, we want to try to address all those questions and concerns. And most of all, we, we hope to see, to see Jesus and hear from him. So the, the features that we talked about last week, the first key feature of, of apocalyptic writing called here Revelation is it contains a lot of far out symbolic Old Testament imagery to drive home real-life application. So it's supposed to be evocative. It's supposed to arrest your attention. It's supposed to make you think. It's supposed to make you feel something. It's, it's supposed to move you to action. And that's what we've already seen as, as we've started to read this and as Cammie read uh, the text, what we're seeing and hearing, how it makes us feel and, and what the call to action might be. That's Revelation. It's also a book of biblical prophecy. Now, biblical prophecy is not fortune-telling. It's, it's faith-raising. It's not like a magic eight ball trying to figure out uh, our fortunes of the future. Biblical prophecy is always uh, those that were called by God to say, thus saith the Lord. Let's cut through all of the noise that you hear out there in the world this is what the Lord has to say for you and for the church and for the world today. And so John is following right along with that tradition of the prophets. He's writing here a revelation and a book of prophecy. So it's a, it's a heavenly book about the risen Lord Jesus with, with down-to-earth application about following him, but it's using incredibly symbolic language all of it derived from the Old Testament. So I said this last week, there's nothing, there's no new truth in Revelation. It's the same truth, but explained to us, communicated to us through these visions in a new way. And finally, we said that it was a letter. A letter from a, an old pastor who cares and loves for the people that he's recording this for, the churches that he's sending it to. His, his heart is going out to his brothers and sisters. He worries for them like, like their family, like they are blood kin because they actually are in Christ. He cares that, that they are suffering and that even as he's writing of this vision, he is suffering all for the sake of Christ. So that was all covered in last week's message. Now, if you missed it, and I believe me, a lot of us missed those last few minutes because I was halfway through my notes and I had five minutes to finish my message before we had our special meeting, I said this, let's slow down the tape. If you were missing how quickly I was talking last week. I concluded by saying the following, that the purpose of this study in Revelation is not to dissect Revelation or debate 
issues of end times. The purpose is to move us to worship God, to inspire us to follow Jesus more today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we are right now. And the purpose of the study is to prepare us for his arrival, to prepare us for his arrival. So, so this book, if, if you notice, we, we were standing to read God's word, and Cammie read a few verses. This book was meant to be read in worship from cover to cover, not analyzed. And so that's what we want to do. We want to worship. Amen? We want to worship when we turn to this and prepare to come to the table. Now, again, a little context. John could be in, in his late 80s, early 90s. We don't know. But John is on this rock island in the middle of nowhere called Patmos. He's been sent there by uh, the emperor. Caesar's reign of terror is intensifying against his, his beloved people, his kinfolk across the sea. Now picture a man powerless physically to do anything about it. I just imagine him on that rock with his eyes clenched, tears coming, falling, the, the crease, creases in his, in his face, his hands balled up in, in fists. He wants to, to fight, but he doesn't have any weapons, so he just opens his hands in, in, in prayer, calling out to the Lord to help his beloved ones that are suffering so greatly for being Christian. He knows that they are under extreme pressure by the empire to conform. Simply conform. Do what you want on your holy day, but the rest of the week is for the empire. He knows that they're being pressed in on the outside to conform. And inside many of the churches, he knows there is false teaching going on. He knows that, that there are those that are watering down the true gospel that are misleading people within the church and everywhere. Everywhere, John thinks about the church universal. He sees spiritual lethargy. He sees believers falling asleep, being lulled to sleep of what's really going on. And it's in that moment that the Lord speaks to him. In fact, it says here, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That would be Sunday, the first day of the week when all this went down. For my fellow Bible nerds that are uh, taking notes, check out Ezekiel chapter 3, verses uh, 12 to 15, to see a parallel between the calling of Ezekiel as a prophet and John being called as a prophet. Ezekiel 3, 12 to 14, uh, 15. So John does write, even as we said, as, as a, a prophet. He writes uh, certainly as a pastor. But look at verse 9. And I'm going to give you cues of, of things that you might star or underline or come back to check on later. Look at verse 9. I want you to underline two words. He writes, quote, I'm your brother, underline brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, John could have pulled rank, couldn't he? He said, I'm, I'm an apostle, I'm, I'm a prophet, I'm what have you. But he so closely wants to identify with his people. He says, first and foremost, I'm your brother. And I'm your partner in the midst of tribulation. That means suffering, hardship. We're also family. We're also in partnership in the kingdom. 
And so here we are, suffering in the kingdom, suffering for Jesus. Now check this out. This is a key theme throughout, uh, throughout Revelation. A major theme of how we conquer the kind of the tagline of our, of our series that we're more than conquerors. How we conquer, how we experience victory in life is by not compromising our faith and giving in to that pressure. We'll see that from cover to cover. How we conquer is by not compromising our faith and giving in to the pressure. When you accept Christ as Lord, when you begin to follow him, listen, do hard times go away? No, they don't. And in fact, more hard times may follow. Hard times, suffering, hardship, folks, that's just part of life, isn't it? For those of us who've been around long enough, we just know it's part of life. But it's a different kind of suffering. I've suffered hardships for the foolish things I've done, the consequences of, of my actions or inaction, things I've done that have been selfish and self-centered, Things that have not been according to God's word. And there, believe me, there are some serious consequences to, to making those poor choices. That's not the kind of suffering John is speaking of that he's partnering, it feels like, family with. He's talking about the suffering that comes for standing up for what's right and for speaking out about your faith. That's the kind of hardship he's speaking of. Now, now look at the verse. I think it's verse 10. Let's see. No, it's verse 9, the end of verse 9. Again, I want you to underline part of this. He says, why, why is he suffering? Why are you suffering? Underline this, on account of, underline this, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Watch how that phrase reoccurs throughout the book. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why suffering continuing and even increasing for Christians, he says, on account of speaking up for Jesus. On account of taking a stand for the good news and behaving like Jesus, that will cause you suffering. So here's some other examples. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. You can either turn there or just write that in uh, your journal notes to look at it another time. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. The first mention of martyrs. John is, is writing of the martyrs, and he's writing of the fifth seal being opened. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Those are martyrs. It means they've been killed. For what? The word of God and for the witness they had borne. Again, Revelation chapter 12, verses 11 to 17. 12, 11 to 17. Again, the same phrase. It says Christians are, are conquering. They're having victory over sin. They're having victory over selfishness and, and joyless living. They're, they're, they're beginning to put their life's hope into Christ. It says in the text that they're living by the blood of the Lamb. And then what does it say? It says the dragon. Yes, there, there's a dragon, by the way, in the book of Revelation, if you haven't noticed. A dragon representing Satan. Satan is furious by our faithfulness. It makes war on Christians. That's Revelation 12. Who is he making war on? Christians in name only? Look at the text. It says, quote, Christians, those that, quote, kept to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Recurring theme. One more. Revelation 20, verse 4. This is the millennium. We're not going to get there yet. If you want to talk about that, that's one of those 
Uh, areas of debate will be there maybe next May. But here again, John sees, and he sees something that's incredibly graphic. So cover the ears of, of young ones. He sees those that have been beheaded because they spoke up for Jesus. They lost their heads. It says, quote, for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. So what are we seeing repeated throughout this, this very heavenly vision? The down-to-earth application. That instead of worshiping the beast, they worship God. And that from start to finish, there is a price to be paid for following Jesus. That life is the reward, though. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians 3.10 that, that he counts it a joy. That he might be counted worthy to suffer and, and to share in the sufferings of Christ. How can there be joy found in the midst of suffering? The Bible teaches that enduring trials, being faithful in the midst of the pressure that you and I experience when we are walking in the truth, when we are speaking up the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it results in a life of tribulation. But we are to wait, we are to endure for the great reward. And here we are in Maple Valley, Washington, USA. How many of us suffer for Jesus? And you share with a neighbor or classmate or a colleague, you might get a little ridicule, but you're not going to be thrown into prison, right? Are we missing something of the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ? Friends, this isn't a, meant to be a guilt trip, like, oh, I feel so bad that I get to come to church. Of course, no, 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 no. But it ought to be a motivation. And every opportunity that we have, even to possess the word that would be outlawed in other parts of this planet, even to gather for prayer or encouragement, not only in your homes, but, but publicly, it ought to move us to such gratitude what do our brothers and sisters, our blood kin want who are suffering right now in prison for the sake of Jesus? What do they want from us? They want our prayers. They want our support. They say, how can I honor you, brother and sister that I don't even know somewhere on the other side of the world, how can I honor you and what you're going through? Here's one way. I want to serve. I want to serve in Jesus' name and take the opportunities that God's afforded me and the freedoms that God's afforded us to be used for God's kingdom. Cheryl and I had our devotion the other day on Friday morning and read this in devotion. I thought this was, was a wonderful quote. It says, quote, ministering to the needs of others is one of the best remedies for self-centeredness and joyless living. Can anyone attest to that being true? Absolutely. I hope that you get plugged in. So John hears something. He says it sounds like a, a trumpet blast behind him. And he says, the, the, the voice says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Look at verse 12. I love this verse. It says, I turned to see the voice. This is what an interesting turn of phrase. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And what does he see? He sees the most wondrous, beautiful, full 
vision of Jesus as he is right now, a high priest and king and judge over the universe. What's the first thing he notices? One like the Son of Man. That's a title. Uh, if you are here last week, you know from Daniel chapter 7. It's a title that Daniel uses of the preexistent one, the, the Messiah who will come to establish the kingdom of God. Prophecy written some 700 years uh, before John sees the Son of Man. That title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite self-designation, the Son of Man. There are many people that claim to be Son of God in the first century of Palestine or daughter of God. That wasn't unusual to, to, to hear someone proclaim, I'm a son of God or I'm a daughter of, of God. No one dared say son of man. That was the title only for the Messiah. And yet here it is. John turns to see the voice and he sees one like the son of man as prophesied in Daniel 7. And John sees him standing there in the middle of what? What does he see? Lampstands. Lampstands, in the midst of seven lampstands. Here's a little note. Numbers chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 4. It tells us that the lampstands, the lampstands stood in the holy place, in the tabernacle before uh, the holy of holies, God's very presence on earth. This lamp and the light from it representing the very presence of God's people. And, and there in the, the holy of holies where God's presence came to dwell among us, just as he did uh, in John chapter 1, right? Jesus came to dwell among us, Emmanuel, God, with us there before the, the bread of presence. And here, John sees lampstands. And he sees seven of them. And we have to look to verse 20. Jesus helps him out, helps us out kind of understand where this study's going. Those of us who are a little scared, someone in the first service said, this is still pretty complex, Pastor P. I said, I, I know, but stick with me. Jesus is saying already to John in verse 20, stick with me. I know it's a mystery. He, said, he tells John, though, that, the, that it represents the seven churches that he's writing to. And I mentioned last week, special numbers, and seven is a special number of completeness or wholeness. And so, in fact, John's Prophecy is to these seven churches that he's writing, but it is for the universal church with a capital C. And what does it mean? Where is Christ? Right in the middle. You're suffering. You're under pressure. There's false teachers. There's spiritual lethargy. People are falling asleep. Lord, where are you? Where are you? Right in the middle. He's saying to John and to you, I know what you're going through. I'm here with you. He's saying right now, I am with you. Again, this is a vision meant to, to arrest our attention, folks. It, it's meant to create an impression of, of the whole, and that's why we're just going to glance at it and not overanalyze it. But the, the impression that it's given when you take it all in, when you just take it all in is is an impression of divine service and wisdom and power and love. Look at verse 13. It says he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And really the, the Greek there is sort of uh, across the chest this, this way. Don't think pageant, think kingly, okay? His long robe and, and golden sash 
what would these remind the people of? These are the very clothes of the high priest, Exodus 39. These are the very clothes of a king. The clothes make the person. The clothing a person wears might be the first thing you notice, and it tells you something about them. So if someone taps you on the shoulder and you spin around and you see someone with a long white coat and a stethoscope around their neck, you might say, well, she must be a doctor. The clothes make the person. And here the first thing John notices is a long robe of a priest and the golden sash of a king. Now the priest would wear, would take that, that sash and wrap it around his waist as a belt when it was time to work, when it was time to serve, when it was time for sacrifice. It was worn around the waist. When the work was finished, that sash was then worn across the chest. I don't want to assume that we all here have gone to Sunday school or been around church for a long time, but what might that represent? That the risen one, one like the Son of Man, wearing a robe that represents being a priest, a mediator between humanity and God, the one who is fully human and fully God, what might it represent that John would point out this important detail. Not something that happened in his head, but he actually turned and saw that the work is finished. The work is finished. There's no more need for work by the priest. The, there is no more sacrifice needed. Everything was finished on the cross. Amen? Do you see that? A beautiful little detail there. All the work is done. So John sees this vision of what he looks like, and then begins the sevenfold description of the risen Lord Jesus. And what I want you to do in your notes is mark out each of those seven, one through seven, each of those uh, vision, parts of the vision, those symbolic images that he sees, and, and consider, how do I see this as him being a priest or a king or a judge? Maybe you could put P, K, or J next to those and come back to them. But we're going to go quickly. The first thing he notices is his hair white and woolly like snow, symbolic of the agelessness of Christ, our great high priest. Oh, I see some folks with white hair out here, or silver hair. Proverbs 3, 16 to 31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And I have a hearty amen and hallelujah for the first service, but you're all <laughs> way too quiet for that one. Amen, Pastor Frank says. Symbolic of his ageless wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire. A, a, a flame of fire penetrates, doesn't it? Cuts right through. And I think about a judge who hears uh, the excuses of the defendant, sees right through uh, the testimony and gets right to the heart of the matter. Fire also purifies, burns away what's not meant to be there. His, his eyes could just see right through John, right to his soul. His feet like burnished bronze, uh, refined in the furnace. Again, this goes back to Daniel's vision uh, of the king that will come and crush any opposition and all injustice, steady and strong. And his voice like the roarings of, of many waters. Raise your hand, have you ever been to Niagara Falls? Anyone ever been to New York to Niagara Falls? What's the biggest waterfall here in our state, in Washington? Anyone know? I, I need to go there someday. But just imagine the roar, if you've heard the roar of, of waterfall, how loud that would, would be. What's beautiful about Jesus is that this con conveys the truth that 
when he speaks, he, he drowns out the, all the noise that we're hearing in the world, all the nonsense that we're seeing on our, on our screens and all the things that, that fill our heads with untruths of what's, what's not really real instead of what is. Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And John's told that these stars represent the seven angels that are out there for the seven churches. Now, I don't know that I see in Scripture that we have guardian angels. There's been plenty of TV shows and movies about guardian angels for an individual. I don't, ah, we could debate that. It says here in Revelation, it seems to say that, that uh, each church has at least one angel assigned. Seven. Seven angels that look like stars in his hands. Something else that would be important for you to understand, these seven stars also refer to the seven known planets at that time. The seven known planets that you could see in the night sky. This was a time when people tried to make sense of the world around them and what was coming, so they would uh, talk to astrologers and, and to mystics that could read the signs of the stars. And so you could say, well, if the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars and peace will... Uh, everyone's like, what? If you, uh, thank you. Okay. We've got some Broadway fans. And I think that's going to come back around, the, the desire to read our horoscopes and the desire to see the stars. Also, the emperors, the Caesars, understood the power of the night sky. They understood that these seven stars represented all the... A cosmic power, and so they would decorate their thrones with stars to represent apparently that they had sovereign rule over all of the universe. And this one has the whole world and the seven stars right in the palm of his hand. He's a king. He's the king. And from his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. A, a sword is a, is a symbol of, of, of war. It's a weapon. John means something different. You could mark uh, Hebrews 4.12 and look there. That, that by his very word, Christ strikes down his enemies. He doesn't need a sword in his hand. It's the very words that he pronounces divine judgment throughout this book on all of his enemies. And then the seventh description, his face shone like the sun at high noon. Brilliant, bright, beautiful, and a blessing. This is what John sees. Satan and his demons won't be destroyed until the final judgment at the white throne, and we'll get there. Their work continues, however, which means to be a faithful follower in the midst of pressure we need to be like Jesus, right? Didn't we used to wear symbols? What would Jesus do? We need to be like Jesus. We need to be wise, as we see in this description, and discerning to really see what's going on by his grace. Lord, help this be true of me. We need to be steady on our feet. We need to have the word of God ever on our lips. We sang our weapon is a word of praise. Amen? That's what it means to be like Jesus. The devil has no legal authority over any believer, but will take advantage, oh my goodness, does he take advantage of the foolish things I do and plays on my insecurities and my folly and weakness. And when I'm tempted to sin, to remind me, see, 
See, you're not with him, you're with me. And unbelief, and the greatest weapon that Satan has over you and over this whole world is fear. What are you afraid of? What are you so petrified by? We don't need to be afraid. His Christ is with us. Look at John's reaction. In the upper room, he leaned on his beloved Savior's chest, and here he falls over practically dead when he sees the risen Lord Jesus, the high priest, the king, the judge. And what's Jesus' reaction? Real life, real world stuff. He says, John, don't be afraid. He reaches out and touches him and lifts him up. Do not be afraid. All these otherworldly, mind-blowing images and symbols and things in this vision that he sees, and he falls down, and then Jesus brings it right down to the real world. Stan, do not be afraid. Why? Because he's got you. If you've given your life to Christ, he's got you. It says, he says his own testimony. He is the first and the last, the living one. He's conquered our greatest fear, which is death. He says over death and Hades, in Hebrew, that's shield, that's the grave. That's six feet under. What are you more afraid of than that? He says, gone. Gone is the past, and gone is that fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. 